Well, good morning, everyone. I think I know most of you, but if not, uh, my name is Clayton Feltz. I get the privilege and honor of serving as the associate pastor here. And uh, I am excited uh, to preach this morning. Uh, we are continuing our, um, our book of 2 Timothy. We're almost done, so we have today, we have next week, and then one more week after that. And then that is it. Uh, I feel like we've been in 2 Timothy for a while, but it has been good. It has been fruitful. But before we get into our, our text, I want to share with you um, a story. And I resonate with this story as someone who gets to teach at Georgia State. Um, there was a Harvard professor, way smarter than I am, uh, named Jennifer Roberts. And she was an art professor, a historian. Billy was actually the one that actually first told me about this, and then I was able to look it up and research. And every year, uh, Professor Roberts actually gets all her students in this art class to do a project, to do a research project. That's how she starts the course. But before she does the research assignment, excuse me, she assigns each student a goal to go to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, find one art project, one art sculpture or painting or whatever that may be, the thing that they want to research, and go there and sit in front of this piece of art for three hours. Now, at first, I'm like, that's, that's not too bad, three hours. But the truth is, most of us have trouble staying focused on something for three minutes. And so these art students go and do this before they can go Google it or go to a library and research it. And they're, they're just to sit there and observe it, to look at it, to sit under it. And what's interesting, when I, when I read the background of this in the Harvard Review, this is what it said. It said, what this exercise showed students is that just because you have looked at something doesn't mean you have seen it. Just because something is available instantly to vision does not mean that it is available instantly to consciousness. Or in slightly more general terms, access is not synonymous with learning. And this is the key part. What turns access into learning is strategic patience and perspective. That was the goal of this professor, to get her students to sit in front of this with strategic patience and actually take a new focus perspective. What we're going to look at this morning is Paul is continuing to write this letter to Timothy, and he's going to show Timothy a perspective that often we can just overlook. How do we finish well? This is not a message that's morbid or depressing, but it is a message that when you come to the end of your life, whenever that is, like Paul is at, we want to finish well. We want to finish well. We want to have the right perspective. Because here's the thing, we all have lens that we walk through life with. We have these lens we put on, and we want to make sure that it is the proper lens. How do we put on a lens like Paul had? So with that, if you have the little booklets, you can take those out, or if you have your Bible, grab it, flip over to 2 Timothy, it'll also be on the screen, and I want to just read our text, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we're going to walk through this section, and I want to take just that very first part, 
that he writes here in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. It's interesting, when you look this up, when you look at the historical context of a drink offering, it's littered throughout Scripture. Billy preached on a few weeks ago that you can use the Bible, you can interpret the Bible with the Bible, that it doesn't contradict itself. It actually is true throughout. And so what we see is this present tense that Paul is sitting in as he's saying, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So what is that? What is a drink offering? Well, a drink offering in the Jewish custom is part of the place and process where God would meet his people. It's where they were sanctified. You see this language throughout Exodus 29 and Leviticus and Numbers. Let me actually read you some of this. Exodus 29, 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel. It's his people. And then it shall be sanctified by my glory. That is this process. Jacob, when he first builds the altar, he is pouring out a drink offering there. Okay, Numbers 15, it describes this drink offering, the place where God is meeting his people as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Paul himself, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, says this in Philippians 2.17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Paul knew what was coming. He knew what his life was going to be. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all that he's writing to the church at Philippi here, the church that was started by Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer, and Paul was in jail when this was first, when he was writing this epistle, and so Paul is saying, listen, I know what lies ahead for my life. My life is going to be a sacrificial life, and in this sacrificial life that I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering, here's what I know. I know I will never be alone because that is the language that Paul is using, that God will be with me. He was with his people always at that moment. And not only is he with me, it pleases him. It pleases him. It's a pleasing aroma. Paul knew his life was going to be sacrificial. That's why he could say with confidence in Philippians 2 that I am glad and rejoice with you all. That even though it's going to be a hard life as we're going to look at, it's going to be a tough life for Paul. It's not going to be rainbows and sunshine and skittles for Paul. Paul knew, Paul knew that it was going to be a good life because his perspective, the lens which he put on, was he was going to live his life, run his race, and it was going to be pleasing to the Lord. Gosh, may we all run that way. May we all run that way. And that's why he's reminding Timothy of this. That it's a sacrificial life being poured out that he's not leaving anything on the field. It's complete. It's complete. But Paul knew, and this is what he wants to encourage us with and he's encouraging Timothy with. The man, when he ran into trouble, Jesus met him there. When Paul was seeing the numbers being added to the church, Jesus was there. When he knew in the moments of darkness, in the moments where he was beaten and left for dead, Jesus was there. That it was a sacrificial life, but the Lord was with him and it was pleasing. Listen, I appreciate so much what Callie just shared. She doesn't even know I'm going to say this. It takes a lot for someone to stand on the stage and share their heart. And share that, man, they've walked through tough times. 
And the thing is, you don't have to be Callie, and you don't have to be me, or you don't have to be Ian, or you don't have to be Nolan, or Billy, or whoever to stand up here and share. The truth is, all of us go through tough times. We know this, and we need to be reminded because we can easily forget so quickly that the Lord walks with us, that we're never alone. I think about the stats right now that I keep hearing about how mental health has is, is gone up and, and there are issues there and that suicide rates continue to scrime, especially with younger people. And I keep going back that I just hope those people know that they are not alone, that they don't have to live a life in solitude. But there's a Savior that's waiting to walk with them. Gosh, maybe we need, we need to be reminded of this. That's why Paul starts it this way. Listen, Paul could walk faithfully because he knew who walked with him. He knew who walked with him. We need to know that. We need to know in those moments where we feel like we can't stand up, that there's someone right there, right beside us. That as Jesus did with the the woman at the well, that he lifted her face up. Maybe, Maybe we need to constantly look through the lens like Paul is reminding Timothy here that that's how you finish. That's how you walk. That's the sacrificial life. It's interesting. I'm reading a book right now by a guy. And I don't know if he's a, he's a Christian. He's a, he's a social scientist and professor at, at George St. Malm, <clears throat> Dr. Cal Newport. He wrote a book called Digital Minimalism. If you um, want to get off your phone more, go read it. If you don't, don't read it <laughs> because it'll convince you. Um, He also wrote a book called Deep Work about focus, which is fantastic. And he actually had another book that come out, um, which is just an interesting title called A World Without Email, which um, I would love. Um, But I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But Dr. Cal Newport, he researches all this stuff in society and sees how technology and focus and how our brain actually works with this. And he, he said this quote. He says, who you are, what you think, feel, and do, what you love is the sum of what you focus on. What you focus on. And it's interesting. You don't have to be a Christian to, to get that. You, you don't. It's what we focus on that we tend to talk about. Billy shared with this last week when he was using the example of, um, of Dan and Richard and Dustin and others. You spend five, ten minutes with those guys and you quickly know what they're interested in. It's because that's what you focus on, right? We all can do this. It's, it's why my wife will look at me and say, please, don't share this story again. You've told me 15 times, I get it. But she knows that's what I'm focused on, but she's heard it. It's how we operate. It's how we operate. Listen, Paul did not focus on a life like this because of what he thought. He focused on a life like this because of what he experienced. He had experienced Jesus at the Damascus Road. If you go back to Acts, you see that, Acts chapter 9, that that you see Paul referred to as Saul, but Saul is going to persecute and kill the Christians. That's his goal. He thought it was this false religion, and as a Jewish leader, gosh, he he couldn't do that, because that was always disaster in the Old Testament. So this way, this Jesus way, we can't have that. And so he was there with the first martyr, with Stephen, which then scatters the Christians out of Jerusalem, and they're going to go to the ends of the earth, just as it said it would. And, and, and so, man, Saul can't have this. And so he wants to go to Damascus because he heard these Christians are fleeing north, and he wants to go into the temples and the synagogues and get them there. And yet, we see in Acts that 
Man, his world is flipped upside down on the road to Damascus. That he meets Jesus and Jesus tells him, Paul or Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his, his life changes. Everything changes. He then goes to Damascus. And he doesn't persecute the Jesus followers. No, he joins them to the point where the very people that had walked with him as the Jewish leaders now want to kill him, which I'm always reminded of. Like, one minute they're with him, the next minute they want to actually kill him. Just like that. To the point where he has to be lowered out of a window just to do escape. And then he goes back to Jerusalem. Barnabas Valdesforges him there. And he goes on from there to live the rest of his life serving and teaching about Jesus. Paul knew, knew this because of what he experienced. What he experienced. I want to go back to our text. Paul says this. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And then he says this. And the time of my departure has come. It has come. Paul's in jail. He's in Rome. He knows what's about to happen. And he knows that this transition is, is, is about to occur. This term, my departure, is like what you would describe as a soldier who would be taking up the stakes of his tent. Like he's starting to pull the stakes out of the ground because it's time to move on. Or like a, a ship or a boat in a harbor and they're starting to pull out of the dock and they're starting to go into open water. It's transitional. He understood that he's at the end and he can look back. He can look back at his life with joy that he has run a good race. And so he's telling Timothy, look, this is where I'm at, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. It's this present tense. And the time has come. And the time of my departure has come. I'm about to transition. Hey, Timothy, I want you to be aware. And here's what's interesting, what he does. He then switches to look back. He reflects. See, this whole letter, he has been instructing Timothy on do this, do this, preach the word, all this kind of good, good theology stuff. Now he's being very practical with his own life. He's looking back. He's reflecting. So I want to ask you just a, a question, and again, I'm not trying to bring the, bring the sermon down here, but I do think it's important. If the end of your life was this week, or if the end of your life was in a couple months, what would you reflect on? What would you reflect on? I heard a podcast by a guy, his name is Phil Kogan. If you've ever watched the show, The Amazing Race, he's the host of that show. And he always asked his guests this, this question. He said, if you could ride across America with three people, living or dead, who it would be? And if you had 24 hours to live, how would you finish? That's this idea. How, what would we reflect on? I started thinking about this this week, and, and the first thing I noticed was I really don't think about it that often. I just don't. But if I'd stop and do, if I stop kind of like those art students and just sit in that space for a second, it's a really interesting thing that happens. My priorities start shifting. I start thinking about, man, all the things I worry about that really don't matter. I start thinking, man, am I using and leveraging my life as Paul did for the gospel? 
Like those are the conversations that you start having with yourself. Listen, that's a conversation that you've, you've got to have. That's what Paul is doing is he's now telling Timothy, I'm going to reflect on how I ran my race. I'm, I'm about to transition. I'm about to finish. Now let's look at my life. Let's look at my life. And Paul measured this life on faithfulness and devotion to the Lord. So he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And this is what he says when he looks back. He says, I have fought the good fight. There are three things he says, but let's look at this first one. I have fought the good fight. This term, fought the good fight, could actually be translated to fought the worthy cause, fought the honorable cause, the noble cause. It was a fight worth fighting. It's this idea, this language, again, of a soldier that Paul uses in chapter 2. That he talks about that there is the sharing and the suffering of a good soldier of Christ Jesus, that that is how he has fought. That it's been a battle. that It's been hard. But man, he fought. He did. He fought the good fight. He fought the noble fight. That he was not a spectator. He was a participant. He didn't stand by and watch the fight. Listen, a life following Jesus is not a spectator sport. It is a life of participation. I see, Gene, I love, Gene, that you shared your story last week. That it was a life of man. God called me to go, and I went. My yes was on the table. It wasn't, hey, the battle's going on, and I'll stand in to kind of watch it. I love history. If you spend 10 minutes with me, I'll probably talk about sports and history with you. Maybe politics. Well, maybe. Um, with that, I love history, and I, th- I think it's so crazy that in the first battles of the Civil War, especially the ones that are around D.C., that there were actually sitting U.S. congressmen and senators that went out to watch the battle. Like it was like a movie. Like they're like, oh, this is going to be great. Let's watch, get the chair, have a picnic. It'll be awesome. They had no clue what was about to happen, how this war would rage on and kill thousands upon thousands. Listen, too often we, we can approach the Christian life that way. That we're just out watching it, not living in it, not participating in it. Paul lived a life of progress, participating in the arena. It's the Teddy Roosevelt quote of the man in the arena that he understood. I'm not going to read the whole quote because it's long, but listen how he Roosevelt says. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. Paul got this, but who does not actually strive to do the deeds. He knows great enthusiasms, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause. And he ends it with this, so that it is his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Man, Paul was a participant. He knew. He knew. He understood the cost was high. Listen, he went from being a person of prestige, a Hebrew of Hebrews, his wealth, his status, his body, his brilliant mind, his passion, his positions, his reputation, his relationships, his career, his dreams, all that changed. 
All that changed. And he's yet living, falsely accused with sedition, abuse in society. He's a nobody in Rome now. He's given it all up. He's busted up. He looks like he is losing. But yet what Paul would say is, listen, no, 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 friends. I have fought the battle. I have fought the good fight. I have fought it because it's worthy and honorable and noble. It will last. So my first question to you, and I have three. Are you in the fight? This morning, are you in the fight? Or are you just consuming? Some, some need to just experience what Paul experienced. They don't know Christ. It has to start there. Paul gave up all that thing because what he experienced in Jesus. But because of what he knew was true, he has lived this worthy fight in life. Others, others know, you know Christ, you've lived for Christ, but for far too long you've been a, a, a consumer, you've, you've not been a participant, you've just watched the battle go by. And what Jesus is inviting you is, listen, he's inviting you to come be a part of it. Right now, you don't have to wait. Paul didn't wait, he literally went to the same town as Saul and changed everything. He didn't go, actually, hold on, i got to go back to Jerusalem, get a 10-point strategic plan, and let's go then figure this out. No, he went, I've experienced Jesus, and I'm going to go change. Go change. Listen, the other thing about a good soldier is not only does Paul know that it's a good, worthy fight. He knew he never fought it alone. I told you about the drink offering. He knew Jesus was always with him. The Holy Spirit was with him every step that he walked. But he also knew that, as we say, he wasn't a part of an audience. He was a part of an army. That he is writing Timothy this. Timothy, who was in Asia with him, who had been left for dead with him. And yet it says that they did not rely on their own strength, but the one who raises people from the dead. He knew that he walked with his fellow soldiers in Christ. He knew, as as Ephesians 6 talks about, the armor of God that, ironically, Timothy is leading the church at Ephesus, that I just think about the battle gear that that Paul had worn and and the shield and, and, and the fiery darts that had come at him for so long that it's just worn down, and yet he would say it's worth it because it's noble and it's good. I love what Russell Moore says. He says, I still wonder how much more effective we would be in preaching the gospel to our neighbors if we showed them, even with our landscape around us, that we are more than a community group. Listen, we are a community group. We talk about go getting community here. But listen to what Russell Moore says. But we're more than that too. This is so encouraging. We're a kingdom. A kingdom that spans the ages and includes the dead and the unborn mighty as an army with many banners. Listen, God has invited you to be a part of an army that lasts the ages of time. To be a fellow soldier with Paul. To be a fellow soldier with Paul. So are you in the fight? Listen, are you living for something bigger than yourself? Are you fighting for something bigger than yourself? Are you fighting for something that will last? Paul did. He gave it all up for it. Listen, you've been invited to fight and be a part of that kingdom.
Why would we settle for anything less? That's why Paul is reminding Timothy of this. That I have fought the good fight. He also tells Timothy again in verse 7, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race. And again, go back to chapter 2. It's this language that Paul continues to use. He's got the soldier and he's got the athlete. And again, this translation here could almost be said that I have finished the race or I have held firm to the race. That I haven't given up. I've given everything on the course. When I actually worked in athletics, part of my job in the conference office was to run championships. So we would have things like conference baseball tournaments or conference basketball tournaments or, or those type of things. Field hockey, lacrosse, whatever it is. But it always amazed me, the very first championship we'd have every year was our cross-country championship. So these student-athletes would come, and they would peak. They would taper right to the championship where they would give their best performance. And they'd go out, and they'd race, and they'd run hard, and it never failed. Soon as they crossed the finish line, it would, it was, it's almost like there was like an invisible sniper there that would just like, bam, Done. <laughs> And they would just collapse. Like, I mean, cross the line, done. To the point where we had to have so many, like, volunteers and trainers. They're like, all right, come on, keep moving. Like, keep moving. don't throw up on him. Keep going, right? Like, they would give everything in this race. Everything. I, I remember having a conversation with our commissioner, my, my boss at the time, whose dad was an NBA executive, and he had grown up in, in professional sports and was a college athlete. And, and he said, I used, to, I used to tell these basketball players, if you could crawl to the bench like one of these cross-country runners, man, I know at that point you had given everything. He said, that never happened. But again, that's the picture here of Paul running the race. Like Paul is at the end. He's giving everything. He's given everything, and it is, listen, it's a hard race. Paul's life wasn't easy. He held firm, though. Let me, let me describe to you, we can look at Paul's life and see some of the hardships. He writes to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, and here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's got the right lineage. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Right? He's got the bloodline. He's got the prestige. He's got everything in the world. Why would he give it up for what's about to happen? Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Here he says, five times... I was, <clears throat> excuse me, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, 39 lashes five times, right? And this is not just that he was beaten. They would beat him as they did with Jesus with almost like the cat of nine tails with this with the, the stick that had these leather straps on it. And on the end of these leather straps would be bone and rock and stone and little things that would grab onto his flesh and pull it off. He then says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This idea of stoning still takes place in places of the world. It's horrific. And yet he said, gosh, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
own frequent journeys and the dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, listen, that's all just physical stuff that's horrific. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So not only is he hurting, living his life the way he did, but he's also stressed that, man, gosh, he's worried about the churches. He cares about the churches. He said, who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? For I am not indignant. That's Paul's life. When he says, listen, when he says, I have finished the race, that's the race he has run. The hard race. The hard race, but yet he held firm. He held firm. And here's the thing. He's finished. He's come to the end and he's finished. He's finished the race that has been set before him. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul didn't go run Timothy's race. Paul didn't go run John's race. Paul didn't run my race. He ran his race. You have a race to run. Only you can run the race. So what is the race that God has set before you? What is the race he has set before you? Not your spouse's race or your friend's race or your co-worker's race or your kid's race. What is your race? Are you running it? I ask you, are you in the fight? Are you running the race? Listen, Paul ran the race where God had placed him. I love what Alistair Begg, Dr. Alistair Begg says here. He says, there is, an, uh, there is no ideal place to serve God except the place he has set you down. No ideal place. He has put you here. You are not here by accident. You are here. Most of us are not even from here. Look, I'm from the backwoods of Tennessee. I could go country. <laughs> but we are here. He has placed us here. You were to run your race here. Man, Paul ran the race. He finished the race that he was called to run. Man, what, what success that looks like. And here's the thing. You don't see that it says he won the race. It doesn't say he won the race. It says he finished the race. He finished the race. For I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So my second question to you this morning is simply this. How do you measure success in your life? Do you measure by wins? Or do you measure it by faithfulness, as Paul did, enduring, lasting? Listen, we often want to measure success by victory. And what Paul is looking at here is his victory was not going to be seen here in his in his race. It's going to come. We're about to see it. <clears throat> no, no, no. His success was just finishing. He had kept the faith. He is reminding Timothy to have a purpose in finishing the race, to keep the faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. He tells, it's this language he shares with Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20. It's the same language you see in 2 Timothy 1.14, where he is telling him to keep, to keep the faith, to guard, to actively guard it, right? To run that race. Man, 
I love what Francis Chan writes. He says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, excuse me, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. That don't matter. And Paul gave it all up for things that mattered. Listen, I've never met anyone when I go to their house to pull out the rewards they won in elementary school. I just haven't. Can you, can any of you name all the presidents of the United States? Anybody want to volunteer on that one? What about the vice presidents? How about the emperors of Rome? Nobody? See, here's the thing. We put success on things that we think matter that typically don't last. And it's not that we shouldn't do those things well. We should. Paul ran with integrity, with intentionality. But listen, we should measure success by faithfulness. We could go, listen, we could, Sean and I could jump on a plane and fly to Rome right now, and for a couple bucks we could walk through all the ruins. And yet in Paul's time, no one in their right mind would have thought the Roman Empire would have fallen. That wasn't on their minds. And yet Paul says, listen, I'm running for something better. I'm keeping the faith for something better. Listen, I love what John Piper says. He says, dead idols don't give living joy. They don't. They don't. Paul mentions the present. He looks at the past and he anticipates what awaits ahead. Verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous, excuse me, guys, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, that he sees what is ahead, that he has confidence in what is ahead. Love it says that there is laid up, not that there might be, not that he's uncertain, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And at the end, I love that, not only to me, but to but also to all. It's a guarantee. It's confidence. He goes forward confidently. And he says this from this time, that henceforth is from this time forward. That's what he's getting into. Paul knows this crown of righteousness is awaiting. And I love that it's the crown of righteousness. Here's the thing. Not a crown of glory, not a crown of peace, not a crown of joy, a crown of righteousness. Because you want to know something about the crown of righteousness? It's the one crown that makes us right, that we can't get for ourselves. We can't get the crown of righteousness for ourselves. It is for those in Christ that he makes us right. Gordon Fee says, one who receives the final crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. I love that. You've got to receive the crown, but you receive the crown through Christ. That's his confidence. Listen, Paul was ready to receive that crown. I hope we are. I hope we're all ready to receive that. When I think about finishing well, that's what Paul knew. That he knows where he's at. He knows how he's lived. He's know, he, he knows the good fight, the worthy cause. He's run the race. He's kept the faith. And this is what's about to await him. What glory that's about to await that he's going to experience. I I said earlier, I think we don't take this perspective often because we just are distracted. Or maybe we don't want to. 
We aren't mindful of the end. We distract ourselves. And yet, here's my one stat of the day. 100% of us will die. 100%. And we don't stop and slow down and think about that. I don't think we think about what lies ahead a lot. Listen, when you read Dr. Cal Newport, as I referenced earlier, he talks about that we really do have a divided attention, that we live in an attention economy, that there's always stuff trying to get our attention, constantly getting our attention, to distract us, to focus on the now. We don't stop and think about it. I mean, honestly, we really don't. I, I, I didn't until this week, until I read this and thought, gosh, man, I really don't think about that often. I think about my week ahead, all the things I need to do. I think about, man, how Tyler and Paige will turn out. I, I think about all these things. I don't actually stop and really rest in the fact that, man, Jesus is always with me. And, and one day, all the things that I am stressed about and I'm worried about and, 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 and that I'm focused on, man, they really aren't going to matter that much. And listen, that happens even within the church. I want to read this quote. After all, our church buildings, even the most state-of-the-art of them, will someday collapse beneath the weight of decay. Your church sign may someday hang silently above some rubble, battered and torn. No one will care about how good its sound system used to be. Our hymnals and our bulletins and our PowerPoint presentations and our systematic theology texts will one day wither away into mold and dust. The Library of Congress itself with a record of all our best-selling evangelical Bible studies and praise song recordings will be swept away. And yet, what Psalm 90 teaches us is, it says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Which is my last question. I said, are you in the fight? How do you measure success in life? But the last one is this, are you living with an eternal perspective? This morning, are you living that way? Are you living out your life that way? Or are you constantly filling your schedule with things that are important? Listen, you've got to do things. Paul had tasks. I don't want to downplay that. But he also did it always running through with the lens and the perspective that was proper. So how's your perspective? How are you living life? How are you going through life in a way that your attention and focus is on things of the eternal? Or are you living with distraction and things that, man, they fill you, and yet, as Piper said, that dead idols, dead idols cannot bring you life? That's the question we all have to wonder with. I love, David Brooks says, I'm always trying to write myself into a better story. And I think that's the way we often live. We want the better story and what we chase things that we think will make us better and happy and fulfilled and satisfied. And yet Paul's life looked like all those things were the opposite. He was beaten and left for dead, and yet he was filled with joy. He was filled with glory knowing that Jesus Jesus walked with him in those moments and that there was a crown of righteousness waiting for him. Listen, only the gospel, only the gospel, only the power of Christ will remain. That's it. Everything else is gonna fade. So, 
we know that Paul finished well because of that. And that's why he's writing Timothy this, and that's why he writes this for us. That this is how he lived, and this is how he finished well. He finished well. The man who met Jesus on the Damascus Road, that went back to Jerusalem, and the disciples were like, ah, nope, uh-uh, not this guy. And yet, he was vouched for, he goes on, to plant churches. He goes on three missionary journeys. He just keeps on going. He runs the race set before him. The good fight. He knew what was ahead. He could rest in that. Listen, I love the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before, that's where we are all heading. Every chapter is better than the one before. Listen, Paul could sustain his life, walk the way he did, because he knew that. He knew what was coming. That's why we have hope. We live in a world where... It's broken. One of the things that I do with the college students I teach is I don't have them do what what Professor Roberts does, go and like look at a sign for three three hours. Wouldn't work really well in public relations anyways. But I want them to observe. I want them to be aware. Excuse me. And one of the things we look at is we look at news cycles, how the news works. And here's what's interesting. The news, if you look at the last year, you take January 1st of 2021, and you go all the way through the year to December 31st, and you look at the top news stories of the day, everyone. You know what's really interesting? It is rare that any news story stays the top news story for more than a couple of days. It just doesn't happen because we're constantly going to the next thing. I mean, look, we, a couple months ago, sat and prayed for the situation in Ukraine. And yet how often do people think that there's a war still going on right now? Still happening. It's the next thing and the next thing because our broken world continues to remind us of that, that it's broken. And that's what the news captures. And yet every once in a while, something breaks through. Something breaks through that gets our attention, that, we, that makes us pause. I'll tell you one for me. A couple weeks ago when there was the shooting at the elementary school, that one made me stand up and pay attention a little more. And you know why I think it did? It's because my wife teaches fourth grade and I got two kids that age. And it just made me think. All those times where, man, Katie and I are in a fight, where we leave heated and frustrated, and man, we'll just resolve it when she gets home. We'll resolve it later that night. And I just thought, gosh, man, what if that day that that happened, what if that happened to her? What if that was the last thing I said to her 
wasn't I love you or I care for you. Heck, most of the things we fight about are probably pretty simple things. It's like, what are we doing? Guys, that's, that's how we live our lives. And what Paul wants to remind us is, hey, slow down. Pause. So that's my challenge for you this week. Slow down. Pause. Sit in that space, even if it's uncomfortable. Man, maybe like those art students, for the first, first few minutes of it, it is uncomfortable, and you just don't want to do it. But man, sit in that space. Ask the Lord to reveal those things. That's how Paul ran. That's how Paul ran. And with that, we can have confidence knowing that he has laid up for us a crown of righteousness. Rest in that. He is a righteous judge that will make all things right. All the brokenness, all the school shootings, all the abuse, all the lying, all the things that this world has broken. And the righteous judge is going to make it right. And he's going to make it right for you. And he's going to make it right for me. And how we know this? Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's where we're heading, guys. I hope that encourages you. I hope we stop and rest in that this week.